So we'll pick up the reading at verse 18, and with the Lord's help, read through verse 21. As I mentioned last week, we were looking at, in just a few verses, how Paul is describing the walk, the road that we're on as Christians, right? And I mentioned there's sort of three primary characteristics of that. Last week I covered two of them. Uh, Today, this passage, we'll cover the third. And I mentioned last week how the Christian life is this road, so to speak, that we're walking on. We need wisdom, Paul says, to walk carefully along that road. Uh, we also we need to have understanding of what God's will is. But there's a third thing here that we'll look at in just a moment. But as I said, I believe so much of what the Christian life is about is learning to not lose heart in this life while we're walking this road as pilgrim people in this world, right? And in order to walk along that road, we need to be aware that this world is trying to cram our hearts with things that constantly distress us. This world is trying to cram our hearts with things that would not only distract, but would rule our hearts, fill our hearts with idols to worship. Things that are superficial, things that are never quite fulfilling. And we're constantly searching for something new to fill our hearts to give us direction. Well, friends, so much of the Christian life is learning to turn away from those temptations, to fill our hearts instead with true guidance by God's Holy Spirit, to point us more and more to Jesus Christ and to live in the same power of that Holy Spirit to produce fruits of righteousness. So friends, as we turn to this word now in Ephesians chapter 5, we need to be aware that this world is teaching us, trying to get us to fill our hearts with false substitutes. And what we really need to do is fill our hearts with the Holy Spirit so that we would see Christ more, to live by his word more, and to help others do the same. So here now, God's holy word from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen. Praise God for his holy word. Well, friends, you as a Christian and we as a church, We can walk with hope and walk with joy and thankfulness in a very dark and confused world by allowing Jesus to take full control of your life rather than choosing any sort of cheap spiritual substitute. What Paul is telling us here in just these few verses, he's telling us what characterizes a sound Christian walk. And it's pretty simple what that is. What's going to characterize a Christian who's walking carefully, if I can say it in just two words, is true spirituality. True spirituality. And I want us to see here in this text, this main thing, to walk away with this main idea, which is don't choose cheap substitutes over true spirituality. 
Allow Jesus to take full control of your life. Don't choose cheap substitutes over true spirituality. Allow Jesus to take full control of your life. And I want us to see that. I think Paul wants us to see that, looking at it two different ways, two different main ideas or two different main points. First, Paul wants us to see the basis of true spirituality. Because here's the truth. True spirituality is founded in God's constant presence by being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the basis of true spirituality, being founded in God's constant presence by being filled with the Holy Spirit. You can see it right there in the text. Verse 18. Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now let's unpack this for a moment. Uh, Right away, Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. I looked through a lot of different commentaries this past week. They spent a lot of time, I think, on talking about wine and drinking and alcohol and not getting drunk. And I think that's important. I think that's partly what Paul's saying here. Uh, But I don't want us to miss the overarching idea here as Paul's drawing a contrast. He's saying, look, alcohol is such a danger. Uh, Getting drunk is such a danger. Intoxication is such a danger for the Christian life or any life because what alcohol can do and intoxication can do is control somebody. Uh, When people get drunk or they're intoxicated with any type of drug, what tends to happen is they have a sort of temporary change, a temporary personality change. You know why people like to get drunk and intoxicated is because it gives them this temporary sense of, of self-esteem sometimes, or a temporary sense of empowerment, or they feel like the life of the party, it's an ego boost, or sometimes it's a temporary numbness to pain, a temporary feeling of happiness. Uh, but what it really does, intoxication, it actually turns people into a kind of a noisy person or an out-of-control person, restless, depressed, angry people. It just leads people to make foolish decisions. And so what Paul is saying here, don't allow alcohol, don't allow drugs or any other substance or experience to control your mind and leave you actually empty and disgraced. Instead, Be filled and controlled by the triune God's presence through the Holy Spirit. That's true control. Now, what does it mean to be full of the Spirit? I think it's interesting here. Because if you're reading this, maybe like me, you read verse 18 as a Christian, and you think, wait a minute, Paul. Tell me to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm I'm, I'm already a Christian. I'm already filled with the Holy Spirit. I think in some sense, we say, yes, we are filled with the Spirit when you're a Christian, right? When when your heart is changed as a Christian, the Holy Spirit is working in your life. You come under conviction of sin. Say, God, I I, I am feeling not just remorse, but I am repentant. I am sorry. I, I feel ashamed that I've sinned against you. And God, please forgive me of my sin. And the Spirit is working in your life to not only see your sin and to be sick of your sin, but also turn to your Savior to look to Christ as the one who died for your sin, 
who took on the wrath and punishment of God for your sin. And to trust in Jesus as the complete propitiation that he also clothes you with his perfect righteousness so that God, when he sees you as a Christian, who's born again by the Spirit, he doesn't see you then as a condemned sinner, but as someone clothed in Christ's righteousness and someone with whom he can have a personal, intimate relationship. Yes, that is the work of the Spirit, the initial conversion, you could say. But as Christians, we're also aware that that's not the end of the Spirit's work in our lives. That just being justified by Christ in God's presence is only part of the work, you could say. Is also the, the necessary work of becoming more and more holy in light of who we are as Christians. And so when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, you need to know that that's not a past tense thing. Not, it's not you have been filled with the Spirit. It's a command, be filled, be continually filled. Did you notice that? It's a present tense type of verb there. It's an ongoing action. But if you're a Christian, you must be continually filled by the Spirit. It's a it's an, it's an action that's going to mark you as a Christian, as a constant practice in your life, is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the basis of true spirituality is that justification and that sanctification process. And so, as you are filled with the Spirit, you're continuing to put sin to death, more and more to hate sin, and to come alive more and more to Christ. The more you go on in the Christian life, then the expectation is you'll hate sin more, you'll love righteousness more, and produce fruits of the Holy Spirit which are necessary for the Christian walk, the same fruits that we saw in Galatians 5. So yes, Jesus accomplished everything necessary for salvation on the cross. But he also ascended into heaven, winning those blessings of salvation. And Jesus doesn't stop the work of salvation after the cross. Jesus, when he ascends into heaven, continues the work of salvation by now pouring out his blessings upon you that he's won. Blessings that come through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus continues to work in your life from heaven through his Holy Spirit to apply the blessings of salvation. That's what Paul's been saying at the beginning of this letter but now he's applying it to our lives. So don't fall for superficial things that would give you a temporary high in this life. What you need are Christ's continued benefits of the application of redemption to make you more and more holy through the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, then you know, as Paul's reminded us, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You've been filled with the fullness of the presence of God. As Paul says in chapter 3, but you're being now made into his holy temple. It's another blessing of salvation, that God is dwelling with you, he says in chapter 2, verse 20 and 22. Another blessing of salvation being applied in your life is that now you have access to a living God. You're no longer alienated from him, Paul says in chapter 2. That the Spirit has overcome and destroyed the power of sin in your life, Paul says in chapter 2 as well. And also the same Spirit is changing you more and more into the likeness of Christ so that we all as Christians would become a mature body of believers. That's what Paul said in chapter 4, verse 13. So if drunkenness and intoxication control you, they're ruining your respectability. 
of ruining that process of sanctification that spirit is to lead you to self-control along with all the other fruits of the spirit. But if anything else is taking place of that, it's foolishness. Spirituality that Paul has in mind here can only be found in Christ. It's not a temporary personality change. It's an eternal change of the soul. But friends, Paul's urging you, as Christians and the church then, on the basis of your gospel status, to live a life by the Holy Spirit controlled by Jesus. Because a life controlled by something else will never satisfy you and would contradict your standing in Christ. If you're a Christian, you've experienced the resurrection power of Jesus Christ by his Spirit, you've known the transforming work of the gospel by his Holy Spirit to open your mind, to soften your heart, to expose your sin, to change you from the old man into the new self in Christ. So just think, how can you possibly go back and be ensnared by sin now, if that's the case? If that's the case, how could you possibly go back to any old life of sin that used to have control over you? You've experienced so much life in the Holy Spirit. Why degrade yourself now? By allowing yourself to go into sin, into a sinful lifestyle. Into a sin, a pattern of sin that you know could never fulfill you. If you are in Jesus Christ and have access to all of these blessings, blessings that far outweigh anything in this earth, if you know those, what else could possibly satisfy you? A fleeting moment of anger? A sinful passion of the flesh? To go back to a life of sin, a besetting sin, to look for satisfaction, 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 to go back to something like that that you thought might bring you pleasure but never could, it's trying like to swim in a bathtub in your hotel room when you've been granted access to the Pacific Ocean. Or to go back to the life of a beggar when you've been adopted by the king and given access to the kingdom. Paul's saying, remember all the access that you have in Jesus Christ, all the beautiful blessings. Whenever you're tempted by sin, be controlled by it, the fleeting pleasures of it. Just remember how cheap it is. Remember how fleeting it is. It can never satisfy you. When Christ controls your life, it's going to show. It's going to show in true spirituality and more and more putting that sin to death, more and more coming to life in Jesus Christ. It's going to result, in other words, in true spirituality. We need to see that this Holy Spirit being filled is a basis of true spirituality, but it's also going to show in our lives in different ways as Christians. And that's the other thing, the main thing that Paul wants to see in these main verses. He wants us to see evidence of true spirituality. And if you truly are living in the Spirit of Christ, He's uh, working in your heart to become more and more like Christ, puts sin to death, it's going to show in your life. And that's what we see in verses 19 through 21. 
How do we express true spirituality? How am I going to grow and show that Jesus, through his spirit, has all control and authority over my life? It's going to show primarily in three things. I don't know if you noticed that. Three things, I think, that Paul wants us to see here. And as we jump into these verses, you need to know, you need to know up front that Paul here is using, again, present tense verbs here. Present tense verbs to show that this is an ongoing thing in the Christian life. True spirituality is going to be marked regularly by these things. Addressing one another, singing and making melody, giving thanks always, submitting to one another. They're not just one and done commands. They are consistent and regular patterns in the Christian life. And so first, if you are a Christian and you're walking in the Spirit, you're going to show it with Spirit-filled singing or Spirit-filled worship. If you allow Jesus to fully take control of your life, your life is going to be filled then with worship of Him through the Spirit. So Paul says right there in verse 19, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, okay, there's probably at least a couple people hearing that, reading that, thinking, Pastor John, um, Paul here says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So why do we only sing psalms here? Uh, Can't we sing hymns and spiritual songs as well? So I don't want to go into a full kind of defense of exclusive psalmody, but I do want to kind of answer that a little bit. I know Ryan answered it very well in our retreat time, talking about why we sing psalms. And I'm just going to kind of refresh our minds a little bit. Paul here is talking about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. One of the first things I want to point out, however, is that, you know, we sing only psalms here. So I could turn around, if someone asks me that question, why do you only sing psalms? I could actually turn around to most evangelical churches today and say, well, you sing only hymns. Why do you not sing psalms as well, right? Most churches today are exclusive something. Let's just recognize that up front. Now, why are we exclusive to psalms? Well, when we read these words, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, often what we do as Christians is we sort of impose a 21st century mindset on those words. We have an understanding, okay, psalms are from the Bible, the book of psalms, hymns, uh, Charles Wesley, um, you know, uh, throw in any other hymn writers, the Gettys or something, and Spiritual songs, we don't always know what to do with that one. Maybe that's like um, spirituals, like African spirituals. We just have these 21st century categories. Remember, Paul is not coming from the 21st century. Paul is a first century Jew. And so when he uses those words, we need to know how he thought of them. And when Paul uses these words in Greek, the original language, we know that he's pulling from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And in the Hebrew Bible, there are three categories of psalms. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are all Greek words for three categories of psalms in the Psalter. So think think of it like this. When the Bible says that we're to worship God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, it's not dividing up the person into these like four categories or whatever and saying you have one here, one there, one there. It's all describing the same thing, one person, right? 
In the same way, when Paul says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, it's all one thing describing the book of Psalms. And so that's one main reason, not the only reason, why we sing psalms in worship, because we believe it's the only psalm book, it's the only psalter, the only book of songs that God has actually commanded his people to sing to worship him. There's nothing else that God has commanded, and therefore we should not sing anything else to him. Now I could go on and explain a little bit more, Um, As I said, Ryan very ably described in our retreat why. If you have more questions, I love to talk about this. You can find me after the service. Also, Ryan, I know, can fill you in as well if you have more questions. But I don't want to get too hung up on there because that kind of carries us away from Paul's point, which is if you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to be singing. Uh, You're going to be wanting to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to praise God for the salvation that he's given to you in Jesus Christ. You're going to be exuding Christ. You're going to be showing it in your life. If you allow Jesus to take control, then you'll be singing about what he's done in your lives to tell other people. Notice that. That's interesting here. In verse 19, and Paul says in that verse, you will be filled with the Spirit singing. Notice there's both a horizontal aspect to it, and a vertical aspect, addressing one another with singing, but then also singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. I thought that was interesting because I stop and think about it. You know, sometimes like, well, isn't my singing on a Sunday just me and God? I'm praising God, right? It's just me and what he's done in my life. Well, it's not just that. When we as Christians are filled with the Spirit, renewed, yes, we are going to praise God. And he's the primary audience of our worship. But what Paul is saying is we're actually also singing, in some sense, to each other. Now, we are encouraging each other, addressing one another in our worship. And we aren't just, it's not just me apart from you in our worship. No, I need to be with other Christians to sing and make melody to the Lord in my heart. So make no mistake here. As Christians, we have a responsibility to worship with other Christians, Paul is saying. And your act of worship in the church is a necessary means of Christian discipleship. In some sense, I can't do discipleship without you here on a Sunday if I'm just singing by myself to God. In the same way, you can't be a part of discipleship and receive discipleship unless you're with God's gathered people on a Sunday singing and making melody in your hearts with God's people to the Lord. Paul makes this even more clear in the parallel passage in Colossians 3. He says something very similar when he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Paul's saying you have a responsibility to teach people, to correct people, to encourage them with God's word through your singing so that we would grow as Christians. That's what true spirituality looks like. Spirituality, true spirituality, does not look like just me in the woods on a Sunday walking through and thinking good thoughts of God and reading my Bible and praying to God on my own on a Sunday. That's not according to Paul, true spirituality. True spirituality is not 
just me at home on a Sunday morning in my pajamas watching my computer screen of a worship service. That's not what Paul has in mind here when he's talking about true spirituality as someone who's filled with the Spirit. True spirituality is singing with other Christians and encouraging each other so that we can build up the body of Christ, as Paul said in chapter 4, verse 16. And so, friends, that's, I can't see other, any, any other way around it. That's why church membership is essential to the Christian life. You and I cannot fully fulfill this command from Paul, from the Bible, unless we are members of a local Christian church. And that's why in the fifth vow of our membership vows, if you're going to take these vows, in the fifth vow, you're going to vow to promise to participate faithfully in this church's worship and service. We vow this vow so that we can fulfill commands like this that Paul's giving us in Ephesians 5 because we need to be with one another singing addressing one another as the local church I mean just think about this Paul's clearly speaking to other Christians at the local church in Ephesus this is a gathered local body as Christians we cannot worship with all Christians in the world right There's no way that Paul's saying, as a Christian, you need to address every single Christian in the world by singing. It's impractical, it's impossible. We have to be committed to one local body so that I know on a Sunday, who am I supposed to sing with? Who am I supposed to disciple? And that requires being a member of the local church. Friends, psalms are great. I love the psalms. I love singing the psalms. I wish more people would sing the psalms. But I do not want to be known as a psalm singing church. I want us to be known as the spirit-filled church. I want Christ Covenant Church to be known as this is the church that takes singing and worship seriously because we take discipleship seriously. I want this to be a church that is known as the church where we care about our worship because God is listening, and because I want the other person around me to be built up in the word of God. That's the kind of church Paul's talking to here, and that's the kind of church that we aspire to, and that's the kind of church we commit to when we take our vows of membership. So if you are filled with the Spirit, it shows in true spirituality through Spirit-filled singing and worship. But there's a second thing, a second evidence of true spirituality, Paul says in verse 20. And that is spirit-filled thanksgiving. It's really hard to miss, actually. See it here in verse 20. Paul says, you need to be filled with the Spirit, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if you caught this, but in the Christian life, Thankfulness and trust in God requires thankfulness and trust in the triune God. If you notice that here in this passage, Paul just sort of unconsciously almost slips in the fact that the three persons of the Godhead are working here in our spiritual lives. 
At the very start, right, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. But then we are to give thanks to God the Father, right? And the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. The triune God with whom we have fellowship as a necessary actor in our, in our spirituality. That's the three persons of the Trinity at work. And so when we are giving thanks, Paul says, to the triune God, remember that thanks is supposed to be constant. Right? Notice that Paul uses that word, give thanks always, continually in the Christian life. Not just here on a Sunday morning, or Sunday afternoon, I should say. Not just in a corporate body, but in your individual life as well, Monday through Saturday. You're giving thanks daily to how God has been working in your life. Yes, thankful for the daily bread that he's given you, but also thankful for how the Spirit is working in your life to produce these gifts that Paul talks about in in Galatians 5. That takes, that takes work. I don't know about you, but I have to constantly remind myself. You would think that thanks is the easiest thing to offer in the Christian life, but the fact is that we often forget to say thank you to God. And I need to remind myself and try to remind my family too and say, hey, what can we stop and give thanks to God for today? How has God been blessing us and working in our lives? Because thanks is supposed to be constant a distinguishing mark in the Christian life. But it's also supposed to be comprehensive. You stop and think about what Paul's saying here about giving thanks continually. And Christians, we don't just give thanks to God when things are going well. I mean, we give thanks for things when they are going well, definitely, right? When God is blessing us, our lives are going through a great season. It seems like we're having a lot of great victory over sin in our lives. But we also give thanks to God in the hard times. And that is where it really starts to pinch us, doesn't it? Let's take Paul's command here seriously. We're not only to give thanks in the good times, but also the hard times. Because Christians are thankful even through suffering and trial, knowing that God is a sovereign God. We talked about a, li- a little bit about this over lunch, in fact. Fisher had some very good questions about why does evil exist in the world? Well, one of those things that we talked about in that conversation is the truth that God is sovereign over all things, even when we don't understand why evil is happening. We trust that in his providence, it's for his glory and our good. And so even when we are experiencing suffering and trial, we don't just become physically and morally numb to it. But we have to be proactive with heartfelt thanks to God and trust in his providence, knowing that he's doing it for his glory and our good. And that takes the work of the Spirit in your life, to be able to pray constantly and comprehensively in the good times and in the hard times. I wonder if you hear that and you look at me standing here and you think, yeah, that's good for you. It's all really good for you to say, Pastor John, you're in Christian ministry, you know, your life is all, you got it all together, it's all sorted out, you see God's hand so clearly, 
But try giving thanks to God in the name of Jesus Christ with mental health issues, broken relationships, physical disability, perhaps some financial issues. That's not so easy, Pastor John. And if that's you, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure it's not easy. And if you're not going through that in your life now, and you do, it's not so easy. It's true that your situation might be far harder than mine. I don't know all the things you're going through. Maybe your situation is even harder than everyone else's in this room. And there might be little, if anything, in your life that you feel thankful about. But I want you to remember who wrote this letter and who wrote these words. Helps to remember that the Apostle Paul did not write this letter from a cozy hotel room along the Mediterranean coast. If you remember earlier in this letter, the Apostle Paul wrote this from prison. Apostle Paul suffered a lot in his life. Imprisoned many times, flogged, beaten, scoffed, mocked, threatened, stoned, shipwrecked. Okay, maybe your life is harder than Paul's was. That's possible. But here's the point. Paul is talking about not a thankfulness that's related to your circumstances, but a thankfulness that rises above them. He's talking about a thankfulness that is precisely for people like you and me, people who've been hurt or struggling, don't know how to cope. He's talking about people who find joy and thanksgiving in the Lord when you can't find it in people, you can't find it in products, you can't find it in personal achievements or any other superficial replacements. God's not calling you here to something impossible. He's calling you to himself. He's calling you to find joy and thanks in him when there's no joy and gratitude anywhere else. That's true Christian spirituality, friends. Not trying to replace God with anything passing, fleeting, superficial. But it's a life that's been fully given over to Jesus Christ as your Savior. And that's going to show. Maybe it'll take some work, but it's going to show in constant and comprehensive thankfulness. That's what Paul's saying to you. There's one more thing, though, that Paul wants us to see here about true spirituality. It also involves spirit-filled submission. It says it there in verse 21. And this one really sticks, I think, in our modern sensibilities, at least in the West. Part of what it means to be a spirit-filled Christian is that you submit. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's a lot I want to say about submission. There's a lot of confusion that we have. I'm not going to say it all here, try to explain it all here, because Lord willing, in the next several Lord's Days, we're going to be looking more closely at it. But let me start by saying this. There's a debate here over submission to whom? Paul's talking about here in these passages, in this passage, because he says submit to one another. 
out of reverence for Christ. One another mean, okay, we're all basically uh, equal here. So when we submit, there's like a mutual exchange, a mutual submission kind of thing going on here. There's no authority. There's no one person here who's sort of over anybody else. Uh, We all equally submit to each other. Is that what's going on here? Is that what Paul's talking about? I don't think so. I think Paul's talking about here submission to proper authorities in the church. That Christians are to submit or yield to God-ordained rulers in authority. I think that's the right way to read it. Could be several reasons I go into, but I just want to point this out that in the following verses here, when Paul talks about submission, if you have your Bible, you can open it up and you can scan through this because Paul's going to talk about different roles throughout the household and society. Uh, Husbands and wives, children and parents, masters and slaves. And he's going to say there's a role, a job for people to submit to the authority in each of those relationships. And each time Paul does that, you can see that he's talking that there's clearly one person who's submitting to the authority. There's no mutual or symmetrical submission that Paul's talking about in those verses. So, for example, Paul doesn't tell husbands to also submit to wives or parents to submit to children as much as we as children would would like that or masters to submit to slaves. We don't see that. Paul doesn't say there's that mutual submission. Now, there's other reasons why we could understand submission here as yielding to a God-ordained authority, but that's the main thing I want us to see here, that true Christian spirituality will show itself by submitting to the church and its God-ordained leaders. Now, I hope to unpack this in the next several weeks, as I said, but just think about it kind of like this. God has given, God has kind of a household that we're in as the church. And God is the master of that household. But God has had his stewards that oversee the household and oversee the different servants of that house. Think of Joseph, or Joseph in Genesis. When he's in Potiphar's house, he is the master steward overseeing all the other servants in that house. His job is to is to steward the resources of Potiphar so that everything is taken care of the household and so the servants who have their jobs and duties have everything that they need to execute their job well. And in the same way, God in his church, he's the master, Christ is the head of his church, but he has given, ordained servants, head servants, stewards, over his resources for the church to watch over and care for his people, the servants of the church, to make sure that everyone in the church not only has the resources they need to grow as Christians, but also to exercise the gifts that they've been given so that they can be faithful to the master as well. So when Paul here is talking about submit to those who are in authority over you, submit out of reverence for Christ, that's what he's wanting us to see in the church that we have a responsibility to submit to God's or, uh, ordained elders, his shepherds, in the church so that the whole church is running well. And notice the mo- main motivation here that Paul gives us, though, in verse 21. The reason we want to submit, the primary reason, is out of reverence for Christ. 
Now, the real word that Paul uses there for reverence is actually fear. Submit out of fear of Christ. That doesn't mean like a terrorized fear or something like we're, like we're in terror of God. It means a, a, a reverential love, a standing in awe of God for everything that he is and who he is and his majesty. And we submit because we love Christ, that we have a um, reverential love for him and what he's done for us, and we submit out of gratitude and knowing that he's given us rulers to oversee his church, that we submit to them, so knowing that they're supposed to provide for us, protect us, and love members of the church. Friends, I want us to see here, this applies to our lives in a very real way again. When Paul says you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, the only way we can practically carry that out as Christians is once again in the local church. And if you want to obey this command and carry it out in your life and live a spirit-filled life, you have to be a member of a local church. Someone once said that you don't actually join a local church, you submit to a local church. Because submitting to a local church is going to help you exercise your spiritual gifts. Submitting to a local church is going to help you grow in godliness, to become more and more like Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, we are to grow up together in maturity in Christ. That can't happen if you're not committed to a local body of believers. You can't sing together, pray together if you're not a member of a church. Other Christians, their care and love for your spiritual well-being cannot be fully carried out if you're not a part of a local church. I mean, just imagine, how do you carry out Matthew 18, for example, when you have a grievance against a fellow Christian? Paul says, go and tell the church. If you haven't submitted to the ruling, the rulers of a, of a local church, how can you carry that out? The only reason, friends, why churches exist is because people, we realize, okay, no church is perfect, but I'm going to settle in this place and try to prosper here spiritually. I'm going to agree with what they teach, their statement of faith. I'm going to try to live together and take membership vows. I'm going to try to live together with them and commit to them because I want to live out my spirituality in a way that I'm going to grow as a Christian as Paul has commanded us here in Ephesians 5. We see that again in our vow of membership, the fifth vow. We participate faithfully in this church's worship and service and to submit in the Lord to its government and to heed its discipline even in case I should be found delinquent in doctrine or life. Friends, that's the kind of commitment that allows us to live out these commands in Ephesians 5. And that's the kind of commitment that says, Jesus has full control of my life. I don't want any cheap substitutes. I want to live out Christian spirituality through worship, through thanks, and through submission. So as we meditate on those words, we think about them and apply them to our lives, let's ask God's help now in doing that. Let's thank him for his word, pray together, asking his help to carry it out. Please pray with me.